Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, Alex Sparks, and Mark Neiser. It's the queue. Welcome to the queue, everyone. My name is Mark Neiser, and tonight I'm joined by Alex Sparks. Hi. And we have a great interview coming up with Entech. Entech was founded in Melbourne, Australia, and has earned a reputation for designing and manufacturing innovative lighting control products. They have created nearly 100 products, including the popular DMX USB Pro. Welcome to the queue. My name is Jeremy Cuman. And I am the sales manager and general manager for Entech Americas, which is the North American branch of Entech Party Limited, the manufacturer of USB to DMX, Ethernet to DMX, and other many different DMX solutions and widgets and interesting technology. When I first contacted you guys, I went to the Australian one directly because sometimes I have had contact with them when I've gotten in a bit of a bind, and but they directed me back over here to to you guys. So are you an independent entity from them, or are you getting their stu- your stuff from there? Is it being made in both places? Most of what we sell is made in Australia, 99 and a fraction of the percent of the time. I would say that's true. I have been coveting the new... MK2 Pro that you guys have made. I just haven't been able to justify the expense since I already have three USB ones and an (laughs) ODE one. So I have four and I only use one at a time. So um, I wish your stuff would break more often. Is that something you've been thinking about? Built in obsolescence. That's a smart market move, but it doesn't really solve what our engineers are striving for in their. In their goals, they want things that they don't have to support too much. They want things that, you know, once we sell them, we go for years without hearing from a customer, unless it's somebody tweeting something like, hashtag Entech, DMX USB Pro Plus, hashtag name software, equals great show, affordably created, or something like that. <laughs> we, we run into that every now and then, but we want that to be the way we hear from customers later. Mm-hmm. Not... I ran into a problem. Help. I, That's at the opposite end of the spectrum, the GPL released USB assembled widget. Mm-hmm. Why did you go for like an open source product? I think that's yeah. super rad. Oh, well, I'm not going to take any credit for that, but I joined the organization when that and a couple of other products were already on the market. Um, I think it goes back to more of the philosophy of our founder, Nicholas Moreau, who really likes to support the open source community on some level for every type of product that we can dream up. It's not always feasible to do it with a really both feet, you know, firmly planted way, but when we can, we do. Um, The philosophy there is that we like to make products that are sort of the connective tissue between other products to make a system work. And when you do that, it really encourages a lot more vitality and diversity in the marketplace of ideas. You know, in the world of people just dreaming up cool things that you can do, if you make a nod to that open source 
mentality. And that's why our very first one, he put in that way so that um, it would become talked about and it wouldn't be, you know, hard for people to understand why it's good at what it does instead of being some sort of mysterious black box that, you know, hands off, don't go in there. He wanted to, I guess, take advantage of the market, take advantage of the goodwill that that created, give something back to the community that had given him a lot of joy when he was in college, I guess. And um, yeah, and that's how it went. The rest is kind of history. Just to be clear, can you tell us what that device is for people that aren't sure. familiar with it? Yeah, that we're referring to right now, the Open DMX USB. And that is a product. Well, there's a couple versions of that. The one that we sell the most often is finished in a metal box and sold in a kind of consumer-friendly package. It can support a full universe of DMX conversion over USB. It's supported by maybe 80% of the same software as those who go for the pro version, although a lot of the really high-end software apps are more likely to say we don't support the open because, and then fill in the blank, there's a couple good reasons. But the open, it's very affordable because what we didn't include, that we later do include in its pro model, the uh, let's say the the, large, the older brother, <laughs> the, the bigger, um, more robust version of this idea, it doesn't have isolation, which is the way of protecting your computer from a power surge that might come up from the DMX rig. Hmm. It's a nice thing to have. And if you're doing a lot of gigs, if you're a professional who's using it day in and day out, you really appreciate that. But for people who are hobbyists or who are just starting out and don't have the budget, they're willing to roll the dice to find something that they can afford. And it's not every day that you get a lightning strike a mile or two away or that you see somebody dropping a drink into the middle of a park can in a party and then, you know, it shorts out and away you go up the, you know, the DMX line to your computer with horrible damage. What would happen to it? Could it burn out your USB port or would it kill the whole thing? Could do either. I really rarely hear anything even remotely like this happening. A few times, you know, in the eight or nine years that I've been involved with the company, have I suspected that that was what was going on. But I've never actually heard of someone saying, my computer was damaged. Hey, mm -hmm. I don't know how you handle colorful language on here. Say whatever you want. If I hate it, I'll edit it out later. But I, I was going to say, rarely do I hear someone say, hey, my computer shot the bed because <laughs> <laughs> there was no isolation on your product. But for those who want that, and if you have an expensive computer, you know, if you've got some sort of like, you know, Mac Airbook, and you want a, an insurance policy, the extra $100 is worth it. I don't hear about that all the time. It's like flood insurance. You don't need it for a very, very, very long time. But when you do need it, you're glad you have it. Mm -hmm. And Alec, are you using this, the widget in some of your designs? Because you can just grab one and drop it in there? I'm personally a big fan of the even lower level than that one, the USB assembled widget, which is just like a PCB and two connectors. It doesn't exactly. have a metal box and stuff. Yeah, that's what I was sort of uh, alluding to when I said this one has the metal box, but there are hobbyists who create their own you know, enclosures and can build a little bit more easily if they don't have a metal box getting in the way. So we make that one, and once upon a time, we even used to sell just the PCB, and people could solder their own components on there. And we did release the design for that, but it became a nuisance when people who didn't understand what they were getting required not just some assembly, but go to Radio Shack and buy your own components. <laughs> it was right. very much a maker-oriented 
product. And, and there were some people who were like, I don't get it. What is this? So we, we discontinued that. But it was once upon a time even available that way. So Radio Shack, for people that don't know, we used to be an electronics store in the United States. And I, I sort of say Radio Shack still, although it's just this year that they've gone the way of the dodo. I can't believe it. And the dodo, for those of you listening who are not elder than dinosaurs, <laughs> um, is an extinct bird. Thank you. Thank you. It's delicious, apparently, as well. So Tastes like chicken? <laughs> just before I forget... What in the world are those other two pins for on that DMX connector? I want to use them really bad. Oh, I'm happy to. So I have to go back in history, but not as far back as the dinosaurs. Although, you know, when you encounter people who were around during the conversations I'm about to uh, poorly reconstitute for you, some of them will say, oh, yeah, back in the day of the dinosaurs, when there were used to be lighting companies roaming the world who didn't play well together, someone dreamed up the idea that, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had one standard so that people could have interoperability? In other words, you could buy a lighting console from one company and buy dimmers from another brand, and they'd work together. It wouldn't be once you buy one, you're stuck with it, and you know what you might buy the best dimmers that you could find, but if you don't like the console made by that same company, tough luck. So when they came together and they basically decided, well, we could take a few good ideas from this uh, engineering team and a few good ideas from that, but it shouldn't be too close to anyone's existing products so that no one has an unfair advantage. And they designed something kind of from the ground up, but borrowing what they liked a little here and there from various things that existed already. And they came up with, about 25, 30 years ago, DMX 512. And they decided at that time that it would be capable of using five-pin XLR cables as its standard. And pins one, two, and three were immediately put to use, with pins four and five being reserved for future expansion. They thought they had it all figured out, but they also knew that things change over time and they wanted to leave some room for growth. Sort of like when you buy a big house, even though you don't have the family you hope will grow into it. <laughs> so pins four and five. In reality, there is no permanently decided upon, everyone agrees this is the way, methodology for using them. They are still, to this day, reserved for future use. Huh. But there have been some usages that have been locally favored by certain manufacturers or groups of them that were not universally adopted. They were just like, okay, this gang of three or four companies is going to decide that they'll use pins four and five for a second universe worth of lighting control. Or they'll use pins four and five to send information back in the other direction from their lights back to the console. Some people have used it for power. That's considered a really big no-no. Yeah. That's actually considered dangerous to others who would have used it one of the first ways that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. You could actually cause something else that you didn't build to explode if you plugged it together with what you're running power on pin four and five on so pins four and five really shouldn't be used for power that's kind of a cardinal sin but there have been a couple schemes but nobody universally approved that it was always kind of like didn't get through committee so they're still waiting on what would be the perfect way to use pins four and five and honestly i have a feeling although i wasn't in those meetings that in somebody's head, they might have thought all along, 
you know what? No one will ever agree on what they're for, but let's use them anyway because it will keep people from plugging microphone cables Mm -hmm. in and using something that is not meant to carry a digital signal. And if you attempt to do that, it's not that it'll immediately fail. It's that the bigger you build your house of cards like that, the more susceptible it is to blowing over in a light breeze. Hmm. You can't build a large, reliable DMX network with microphone cable, but you could probably put one or two pieces in and get the whole thing to work mm-hmm. periodically. It may not work all the time. Murphy's Law tells you that the bigger you make it, the more important your gig probably is, the less time you probably have to troubleshoot and figure out what's wrong, and that's when it's likeliest to act up. I use so many mic cables in my DMX network. You're making me so terrified right now. I don't know where even to go with that. So you're, you're in Virginia, and I don't know how many times you get lakes there freezing over in the winter. Is that common? <laughs> no, not anymore. Yeah, I used to live up north where that would be a, a common thing to do. That's one of the analogies I use to explain to people how it can work. Yeah, it can work. And you can drive your car out into the middle of lake, I don't know, pick one, up in Minnesota. You could drive your car out there and, and do ice fishing and all that stuff. But eventually, if the ice gets thin enough, you're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. And what is the problem typically? Dropout where I, I just don't get the signal over there or half of it works? or could be dropout. It could be incorrect data. You know, it might get a little bit harder to read. You know, when you're talking on a phone with a digital line, a conversation over, over IP, the Skype call we're having right now is one of those, and it sounds pretty good to me. But you have heard probably in your lifetime instances where it just dropped out. It could sound garbled, but it wouldn't be static. It would just sort of change Mm -hmm. and not be that intelligible anymore. And DMX can do that Hmm. if the impedance is wrong. So what's wrong with microphone cable? First of all, the impedance isn't correct for the kind of signal. The native impedance for DMX should be about 120 ohms. And second of all, there's a shielding issue. What you have in the way of shielding for mics is not same as what you'd want for DMX. So that the signal leaks out and gets weaker as it goes further along the line? If you were using a microphone cable instead of DMX, that's a pretty close way of describing it with the caveat that I am not an engineer. Mm -hmm. The other analogy I like, and I'm sure some of your listeners will get this one if they've never been to a part of the country where uh, lakes freeze, but they probably have been to places where you drive your car faster than the speed limit just everyone does it and just because you're doing it and getting away with it doesn't mean you'll always get away with it and there'll never be a police car with a radar gun and the odds are that they'll catch you on the time that you're late to work and it really matters Mm -hmm. so i feel it's the same way with dmx if you don't use the proper kind of cable and you don't terminate also that's just about equally important putting a little terminator at the end of your line yeah you can get away with it it's certainly you can find stories all over the place of people who say, oh, I never do that, and I haven't had a problem yet. You might never, but you probably will if you're gonna at one of the times you could least afford right. to screw around with that. But how do you terminate a chain if... So I run a local network, so I go ma- out of my Mac, ODE out, and then I do a bunch of LED panel lights that are my own things, a couple movers into a couple dimmer packs... And then I leave the dimmers, and then I go into the house, their system, their lighting system of the theater. 
Yeah. That system is probably terminated then, right? It would be very likely to be, yeah, yes. Yeah, so I'm already terminated by doing that. It's just if I just stay locally and don't put a cap on the end of it, I'm I'm shooting myself in the foot. Yeah. All right, here's how termination works. Um, to the technical people, it's just a 120-ohm resistor so that it has some place for the electrical signal to go so that it doesn't echo back and forth up and down the line and create distortion of the pure waveforms. A good analogy, though, that I have heard people really grasp and say that makes sense now i get it is if you have a long corridor 100 feet long or something vast and it's just full of little doors but it's a big echo chamber you shout hello and at the end of the hallway there's a big brick wall and it bounces your voice back to you saying hello 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 these sort of echoes make it harder for you if you keep talking. If you just say hello, it's it's quaint and funny. But if you have a monologue, if you're talking, reciting the names of the states or something like that, all those echoes are going to interfere with the clarity of your speech. You're not going to be making yourself understood as easily, especially to somebody who sticks their head out of one of the doors in the middle where they're hearing the echo coming back, slapping off of the far wall and they're hearing your voice as well mm -hmm. and they can't tell which is which right so imagine now that you take a burlap hanging or or carpeting or egg crating or some kind of sound absorption material and you slap that on that far wall so that the echoes are absorbed and now your voice is much clearer to somebody standing somewhere up and down the corridor in a doorway midway. Hmm. So that's exactly what's happening to the DMX signal. The little minor fluctuations in voltage that make up ones and zeros, they're reflecting back off the end if you don't put a terminator because there's nowhere for them to go. Mm -hmm. The terminator is a little place to absorb the energy, turn it into heat, and it goes away. Interesting. I did make my own terminator when I first started doing this, which I still have it. I just, I just yeah, I never plug it in. I... I same reason well, I was told I had to throw away those grounding plugs. Carry that Terminator with you, and if something starts behaving weirdly, mm -hmm. then you can assume the house you're plugged into at the end of your daisy chain might not have a 120-ohm termination at the end of it. And mm -hmm. then there you go. You're ready to have But to then i got to go find that last step. light, right? Yeah, you do. Or the dimmer rack would have it as well. I guess dimmer racks have it built in, right? Some do, mm -hmm. but not all. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's good to carry one with you. And if you start seeing problems, try it. It may make the problem go away. If it doesn't, then something much more seriously weird is going on. Right. But if it does solve the problem and you were prepared and it, it went away just like that, then you can move on to doing other things that are important to you instead of sweating and not knowing whether or not this is the problem. Right. I know all about Intech and the control products, but I'm super curious about all of the LED stuff. So oh, ha have, yeah. has Intech always been making both, or why did they transition from control into LED products? It hasn't always been thus. You're correct. It's about a three- or four-year journey that we've been on that has taken us out into the heart of this territory. Uh, there are actually a lot of other companies who are making different kinds of LED products, and many of them do work in the entertainment field. The history of this is that LED is just so much about electronics, and it's different from your traditional parkans where you really have to mess around with optics quite a bit and mechanical things quite a bit before you see anything. And 
it's just a different kind of set of skills that the engineers building a old conventional lighting fixture needed to have compared to working in the LED world. Since our engineers in Australia from day one were all pretty knowledgeable about electronics, they were intrigued by the idea of, at first they were creating an LED driver. That's the piece of electronics that basically dims the LEDs according to the brightness you want it to be at with your DMX signal. Was it like a PWM uh, product? What is PWM? Pulse Width Modulation, PWM, is basically turning something on and off so fast that you don't see it, but the way in which you control how much of the time it's on and how much of the time it's off makes a net effect that your eyes interpret as being brighter or dimmer Hmm. according to which way you go. So if you want it to be on full, then you just turn it off almost 0% of the time and leave it on the rest. If you want it to be very dim, you go for longer pauses before turning it back on again. Hmm. The longer those pauses are, we're talking about changing it maybe hundreds of times a second between off and on, faster than the eye can possibly see. You can capture this with cameras if you have pretty sophisticated ones, but absent a high-speed camera, you don't see this. And we're talking about just changing the width of your pulse, wider and wider and wider until it's on all the time to dim up from nothing to bright. So you're modulating how bright it appears by changing the width of your pulse. Hmm. Pulse width modulation, PWM. And is that the pretty standard way that people are using Very. dimming LEDs now? It's probably the most common way. Mm-hmm. What is fun about it, it used to be something that could only be done with a pretty sizable piece of electronics, something maybe the size of your fist or a couple fingers in size or that kind of thing has got more and more advanced. But we're now actually seeing chips coming out of factories that will allow us to do the PWM on the chip. Wow. And these chips are the size of your pinky fingernail. Wow. So we have product that is individually dimmed at different brightness levels or different color mixes for every one of the little LED chips, and they can be spread out like as close together as your fingernails are to each wow. other when you are holding your hand flat. Is that what the Matrix product is using? Some of that kind of stuff would be an example. Or our LED tape, the pixel tape. Mm-hmm. We also have some constant voltage tape, which it's constantly the same color from one end of the tape to the other. That's popular, but the thing that's really going crazy right now is the pixel tape. Because they're individually addressable, right? Yeah. Right. And so you could think about that as being able to create chases or a rainbow or a water effect across the length of this tape. Now, the, the fun thing about that is that it almost makes your imagination the only limit to what kind of effects you can do in really small sizes. What's... A challenge is that while we can build things with tons and tons of different pixels side by side, and and we we call them pixels because it's really like doing little portions of a photo or of a television screen, but the smaller you get, the more people want to do projects with thousands and thousands of pixels in them. And that's something that the DMX protocol Mm -hmm. was not dreamed up Hmm. with this in mind. Right. You're out of, you're out of addresses. You run out quickly. Here's the way that math works. So DMX can do 512 
individual things. But each of the things that you're talking about here with a pixel is going to be a trio of channels, red, green, and blue. So we divide 512 by 3, and you get about 170 pixels in every universe. Wow. Wow. And that's 170 might sound like a lot, but if you created a square that was 8 by 8, that's 64 of them. Yeah. So do add, add another square. You're at 128. You're almost up to 170 now. Wow. Can't do the third square. So are you just adding universes to fix that or a yeah. whole new way of doing it? A little of both. In smaller projects, we just add a few more universes and that's not too bad. In bigger projects, one of the things that we've done is we've come up with a, I guess it's a new protocol that sits in between ArtNet, which is what your ODE that you have is talking. Mm -hmm. It sits between the ArtNet and the DMX type control of the pixel tape. And it, we call this Plink, which is short for pixel link. And we can do two universes over one Plink cable. That gives you just a bit more bang for the buck, you know, before you have to run more cable back from your home base. But now my Mac, which can only do two universes, can't control those anymore? Is that... Oh, you could. Let's say you were to take two of your DMX USB Pros and connect that up to whatever software you like today. You can um, have two of them plugged into USB at the same time? You should be able to. It depends on the software you're using. And have two universes? Yeah. yeah. Really? I did not know that. Not all software will go there. Well, I never even thought of trying that. I'm probably going to have to do that before I go to bed tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to use the first universe for the first 170 pixels, and then your second universe would be another 170. And we could get that all on one reel of tape that was five meters long. Like, if the tape has 60 LEDs per meter, that'll be 300 LEDs total on a five-meter reel. And those are the individual addressables, right? Yeah. So the geeks out there are going to really like this. I learned about this over the last year as projects have come along that we've been helping customers assemble, and I, I began to find a need not just to talk about it in artsy-fartsy language and say, here are the things that you could do, but also to get into the nitty-gritty, not quite an engineering-level understanding of it, right. but still kind of, I, I do understand a little bit how the data moves around inside this stuff. So these chips, they're made by World Semiconductor, which is a chip maker in China, and the WS, World Semiconductor, WS2800 family of chips has a few different models and a few different things that slightly change around on this, but we're mostly using the 2811s, the 2812s, and the 12Bs, and here's how they deal with this. So they take a long reel of tape, and they put a lot of identical chips on it, one after another. Now, the first one on there, the very first one you connect to the signal, thinks that it's address number one. And so you feed it all the information for the whole reel of tape, but it only listens to address one for its first color, let's say red, two for green, three for blue. might be in another order, but that's not really important. It'll be one of those three colors, and then the next, and then the next. And it uses those three, and then it passes all the rest of the data that it can't do anything with to its next-door neighbor. That'll be the second chip on the tape. And it strips away the three channel values that it used when it passes it on. So it's sort of like taking a pack of gum and removing one stick and handing the rest to your neighbor. Or a bottle of wine and taking a swig and giving everyone downstream of you what's left. So by the time you get to the last one on the end of the chain, he's only hearing what he needs to operate himself, not 
anyone after that because there isn't anyone after that, so you didn't have any more information to convey. Hmm. But he still thinks he's won. He doesn't know there's anyone in front of him who's filtering all that information out. And that's why you can cut these pieces of tape in any length you want, pretty much, and reuse them in various configurations. And as long as you make a map of what piece of tape is where in the chain, you'll know what the addresses are. And they don't have to have any long-term memory. When you unplug them, they come back again, and they immediately boot up and use the same address that they had before because it's where they're positioned. So I have 96 sitting behind me on, on a table, and I use a sketch and an Arduino to control them. Would I be able to instead have those plugged in right into my DMX chain? But then I'd have to individually address them, and the way around that is to do a sketch. Is that true? I would venture a guess that what it's doing is probably converting to the WS2812 or 11 protocol. That is correct. And so that means you're using the Arduino to do something very comparable to what we make something that's a little more commercializable, a little more like end-user friendly for people who aren't do-it-yourselfers, aren't maker people. Mm-hmm. We call it the Pixie Driver. And the Pixie Driver does two things. One of them is what you just described your Arduino sketch doing, changing one protocol to the other, DMX in, WS2812 out. Okay. The other thing our Pixie Driver does simultaneously in the same box is convert power from the wall to the five volt, which the tape requires. Right. And you can do that with two boxes really easily. Get a power brick and your Arduino side by side. But, you know, if you're doing an installation and you want it to look pretty and you don't want people seeing a spaghetti of cable, mm-hmm. that's why we have the product that we made to make that kind of thing easier. Well, all my stuff has to be totally self-contained and wireless. So it's a real challenge to power 96 of these things in a teeny, lightweight, self-enclosed, juggleable device. But sounds fun. It is fun. It's, I'm getting there. I, uh, I see your A1 manual controller. Awesome. This is just like a light switch that I can change whatever LED color I want. It sort of looks like a light switch on the wall. It's got sort of a touch-sensitive uh, rotary uh, area and a couple of buttons. And that would be, you would basically have your light source downstream of this, and it provides the PWM, the pulse width modulation. Hmm. Uh, And you can use it on the wall, yeah. You'd need to feed it the appropriate DC voltage for whatever your LEDs are. So for instance, I have a restaurant here in Raleigh that we did a whole renovation project on about a year ago, and they have some LEDs that are lighting up paintings that are hung on the wall. And we just put a a manual wall-based a, a copy of this product you're talking about, right where there used to be a rotary dimmer in the wall. This isn't controlled by some computer somewhere else in the building. This isn't controlled by anyone's iPad. They just walk up to the wall right next to these lights and make the paintings a little brighter if they want to. But side by side with that, in the same room, I have DPro and a Datagate running eight universes worth of control, most of which is... The LED tape all over the place, dancing up a storm and making little fiery and water effects on the wall behind the bar and in front of the bar and behind the stage. And we have a few stage lights, too. A while ago, you asked me how we got into this. First, we made some LED drivers, and then I said to the engineering team, well, I can sell these, but I will need some LEDs to turn on with them or I won't have any way to demo it effectively. And that's when they said, oh, well, we'll find something. And they found something that they located in China that I could use to 
show it off but then they looked at it and said we could do this better so they set off on that journey and that's been a very interesting one for us have you been to, yeah, to both, wolf trap both lately? of us are actually in virginia right now so yeah well they renovated and included 112 of our olive two light bars the 600 millimeter two foot long ones as their new house lights to get rid of a bunch of old stuff that was not very energy efficient and that they couldn't keep maintaining any longer oh. and that's the so far i think for me the pinnacle of what we've done in the way of projects with the led family that Entech started about five years ago <laughs> what does the name olive come from we were trying to come up with a name for a new fixture a new line of products for our our company and the concept of how about creating a series of things that go in an order like an alphabet was being talked about we couldn't use uh. the letter alpha which is greek because there was already a company in the lighting industry who was making products and calling them the alpha spot and so we went to other ancient languages and tried to borrow from that i think i probably threw out about 10 or 15 in a brainstorming session and that was one of them and nicholas said Aleph, I like that. I've heard that before. What is that? Well, it can be either Arabic or Hebrew, depending on how you spell it. But it also is a kind of a homonym. It sounds just like olive, like an olive branch. So I thought it was an interesting image to, to say we're offering an olive branch to the world to make it a greener place. Oh, beautiful. What does RDM mean? It stands for Remote Device Management. So you can leave it self-contained once you program it? Is that what that is? Well, here's what it really means. DMX is a monologue. DMX starts in one central location and sends information out along these chains to a bunch of things that are supposed to be listening. And if they're doing it correctly, they know what part of what they're listening to they're supposed to respond to. But there's never any feedback. There's never any loop of information back to the beginning, to the source. It's the UDP of DMX. You could say it that way, yes. So that's DMX. Now, some of the same brain trust that developed DMX said, you know, one of these days we're going to have to develop a talkback procedure. And some of those same people, about 15 years later, began meeting about that. And one idea was to use that pin four and five thing, but they opted not to do that. What they came up with instead was an extension of DMX that you could liken to timeshare. So in between the packets of signal telling the lights, do this, there's this little other conversation that can be going on if you have an RDM controller and some RDM responding lights or dimmers or fog machines or whatever. So the RDM, the remote device management enabled pieces of equipment, are going to have a conversation that's going on in between updates of the lighting levels. It doesn't mean you can't keep running your show. It does make your show a little bit choppier if you keep having a large amount of RDM traffic going around. But if you just are sending once or twice every now and then a quick little update, RDM is really transparent and doesn't get in the way. And, and that'll give you like a green LED light will come on to tell you that something's been completed and that you get you some feedback. Is that what its purpose is? Oh, well, or like you could change the address of something without having to walk over to the line and ladder. physically touch it. Yeah, yeah. Ah, that's, that's cool. really the best example of it is that it's quicker than having to climb a ladder to go do something that you used to have to do that way. Mm -hmm. 
whether that's changing the address of the light or looking up how many hours since the lamp was changed on that moving light because they there's a lot of older moving lights where they have like an arc source lamp and if you don't change them after every so many hours in the hundreds maybe but eventually they blow up you've got to change them you, you know but would that require that that light be rdm compatible yeah if you get an rdm compatible light you can ask it how long has it been since i changed huh. the oil on you okay now i gotta go see if my lights are rdm sometimes your lights might have multiple modes they can operate in like different personalities that they could use there's like a high-res version and a low-res version, and then there's a version with a strobe, and there's one without the strobe, and so forth. And you get to pick that usually with a menu or maybe some dip switch. Mm-hmm. Or if you have an RDM-enabled light, you can change that from a computer sitting at your desk. If, you're, if you've got the DMX rig connected up to something that could talk RDM as well. Hmm. So I was poking around at the, the LED strips and saw that they recommend heat sinks for them yeah they do i've never done that before but is that something i should be doing well it will increase the length of its lifespan if you do or i guess we could put it conversely when they say they're rated for let's say fifty thousand hours that assumes you keep them in the correct temperature range that they're supposed to operate in and if you don't have a heat sink and they get too hot you're going to be prematurely seeing them age Although, you know, you could maybe get a, a, a thermometer or a infrared sensor and see how they're doing, and maybe it doesn't matter. In some situations, you might not be running them to full, or they might be in a cool, breezy area where there's enough airflow around them that the heat's going where it needs to go. But if you were to put them out, out in the baking sun in a sealed air plexiglass display box, and they can't ventilate, the cooling isn't happening, you'd see them fail a lot sooner than seven or eight Hmm. years of constant use. You'd probably see them fail in a year. And a heat sink, just to be clear, that's a way of cooling down the electronics so they don't overheat. You you sort of push it off into a piece of metal, and it helps cool the thing, right? Right. Yeah, usually that metal is connected to a wider piece of metal somewhere, and, and the heat is conducted by the metal off to somewhere where it can be safely allowed to go without ruining anything. Sometimes you will see fins. That's also a good way of cooling things off, like your radiator in your car. And these these heat sinks are are designed in a variety of different shapes. Depending on how much heat they have to get rid of, Mm -hmm. they may be more intricate and have more little surfaces. What are some just crazy uses you've stumbled on in your LED products or in your DMX stuff that people have been building? One fun thing for us this summer was this homeowner had a chandelier made about 9 feet by 18 inches. It goes over, I guess, their dining room table. And and it's made up of 477 little crystal rods. Each one are about an inch in diameter, and they're tapered in height, so they go... They're longer, longer, longer as they go to the middle. So it creates kind of like a shallow V. It's like 9 by 53 wow. little little rods. Every one of them has one of our pixel dots behind it so that the coloring can be done in a beautiful gradation as you go from one side to the other, and it can all move. It's just art for art's sake in the middle of someone's dining room. I don't know. It's, an, it's a conversation piece. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people will see that, I mean, they were planning on entertaining for the 
4th of July. So I helped program some of these shows, and one of them was American Flag Waving in the Breeze. Is is a computer running that, or is that being built into an independent controller? We put that into an independent controller, ultimately, because they didn't want to leave a computer dedicated towards running it all day long, mm-hmm. 24-7. Mm-hmm. So we have a computer that they bring in when they want to change the, the shows to program new information, new content. Mm-hmm. And then it, it gets dumped onto our eStreamer. The eStreamer is basically like a big TiVo for DMX levels, or Artnet. In this case, it was Artnet. Um, and then that's turned into, let's see, from the Artnet, we, we have an ODE and then a Pixie driver for each third of the chandelier. So it was three universes, 477 pixels, just about filled three universes. Wow. Very cool. Some of the other crazy stuff I'm seeing, I'm seeing people build the pixel map tape and dots into signage. I'm seeing them build, build it into industrial applications so that in a factory or a warehouse, they can kind of put indicator lights right where they want immediately in one location and nowhere else. And that could be computer controlled. A church in Oklahoma did a Christmas pageant that used 76 reels, five meter long reels of this tape. And that took three of our pixelators, which would be the equivalent of 76 of the pixie drivers, or about 150 universes worth of DMX. I'm looking at this Melbourne Airport project. There's, there's recessed lighting on ceilings all over the place, there's a giant sign. Of the name Melbourne, that looks like it's all addressable on LED tape. That's right. There's a lot of recessed stuff. Every, every fixture that's controllable in this, and I'm not saying that's every single street light and every single task light in, anywhere in the whole airport building, but everything they had to do with the renovation that they did was a kind of fixture we made. So we made some new things specifically for this project that aren't even available to the public and maybe they will be one day we made some round led fixtures we made the, these big signs there was a collaboration with a well-known architectural lighting designer adele at mint lighting design and she did a whole lot of the concept of what they wanted to do but but it was our people who kind of figured out all the nuts and bolts about how to make it happen and they designed a system together with her that was capable of running this with all these different shows playing at different times of day and it's pretty intricate. It uses the eStreamer to play back what was programmed into it, and it uses a couple pixelators, and then some custom stuff that wasn't even turned into a product yet. I'm looking at this where it says white light was banned from the design. <laughs> yeah. So it's all just beautiful, saturated colors, and it, it's a really cool piece. Yeah, it is beautiful. I'll include some pictures up on the website to show people how amazing this is. Well, I assume you'll be sending us a giant gift box of all this crap to play with, and then we'll just, you know, eat that, and we'll review it in a perfectly, you know, perfect light, of course, and uh, build up our giant, the Q sign for the next uh, convention we go to. What conventions do you go to? None. <laughs> I oh. haven't been. Alex, well, you've been to some stuff. I've been to USITT a couple times. Mm-hmm. Have you found us at our booth before? Uh, yeah, I have. We probably met. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, well, I look forward to re- rekindling that when the next time happens. Well, if you can make it out to Vegas, we're doing our steampunk-themed booth a little bit more higher, classier this year. The reason we did this is it's a whole kind of a comic book 
level of story or narrative here. The pixelator is something that we felt was such a game changer in terms of how large you could integrate your pixel-based projects into and still keep them affordable and sized down small enough to do in places where you're limited on space and fun and easy to install. So we thought it was just such a game changer that it really needed to be given a larger-than-life introduction. Simultaneously to thinking about this as a concept, we were also designing a booth. The shapes that we were, that I was seeing in it started to remind me of certain steampunk visuals. And so we said, well, how about this? How about we have this steampunk theme, and we ended up getting costumes and a sound design and a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and, and in fact, um, QLab was used to control this. Oh, Curtis Craig. He teaches sound design at Penn State. Did a wonderful sound design that that's had this sort of mechanistic feel and it built and built while the lights were changing. And um, it was a lot of fun. And so the storyboard, if you will, is that the uh, NTech and the Pixel Punk Revolution have developed the Pixelator as our secret weapon in the battle against the minions of Monochrome. <laughs> And that's it, basically. I mean, maybe one day we might even have a comic book. I've got an illustrator who's beginning yes, to work on that. That's a great idea. I've thought of doing that for my marketing several times. It's a, I think it's a great idea. To and now you could just do a digital comic book, which you could just download too, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, we already ha she's already created these wanted posters for those of us who are working the booth. We're all got these you know, very clever little um, aliases and what we're guilty of according to the, the establishment that we're fighting. Um, the minions of Monochrome, you know, basically want you to design with one hand tied behind your back, which is changing color from one place to another. So it's okay. You can make it any color you want as long as it's always that color everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's the way the old LED stuff would allow you to have some fun. But it's still kind of limiting. With the new stuff that we're playing around with, with, you know, what you're playing with um, on on Arduino and Sketch, what we're doing with our Pixie driver, the Pixelator just does it on steroids. Hmm. So we just thought that was like striking a blow, you know, for individuality and freedom of expression. Maybe putting a little bit of a, you know, ec extra poetic twist on it, but well, it's I, fun. I, I do a lot of trade shows too, so I'm always looking for a crazy way to make my stuff just stand out and make people want to come over. I use a lot of video mapping and that, and a lot of LED stuff and lasers and stuff to sort of draw in their attention. Yeah. But, are there, uh, are there any products that let you like, like macros for adjustable LED tape? So you don't necessarily have to use all these universes to control them. That's like, what you could do like, with a, uh, with, with a sketch. I think Sketch would be an example of that. Sketch is taking over most of the brains and doing a lot of behind-the-scenes manipulation, yeah. probably. But it's um, a mess. It's a mess to write them. They're really messy and hard to. And then I have to use serial commands to wirelessly get that into to trigger the the Arduino to do what I what part of the sketch to fire. What we do in most situations is try to assemble a system where it's just easy to manipulate that much DMX data and then you have an immense amount of control. And then there's a lot of different software applications that are out there that make manipulating all of this graphical and easy. Yeah, There are LED mapper programs that uh, 
could be thought of as media servers. And you can control them with DMX or MIDI or uh, a, with a Wiimote or a lot of other things. Hmm. Or, or the response to music. Yeah, or yeah. Lots and lots of different things. Well, or Alec, certainly you- Alec is writing a uh, the new lighting software we're all going to be using So right I f- now. I feel newly inspired to add some pixel mapping stuff. Yeah, I think it's yeah. perfect. Load a, you can load a video or upload an image, and boom, it's it'll recognize it, and you're ready, to, and it's all of a sudden it's mapping it. What else have you used QLab to do? It was really fun to work with Curtis last year for Vegas, where he brought in these pieces and layered a really cool QLab um, show together for us. And then we had a bunch of little speakers hidden under our tables, and oh, it was just a blast. Yeah, I would love to see that, and I'll definitely try to come to the convention. And Alec, I'll, I'll get a perm- you need to get a permission slip for your mom so you can come with me. Yes, absolutely. Okay, sure, she'll sign. <laughs> Not if she looks if she does a uh, background check on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we got uh, plenty of stuff. Anything else you want to tell us? I would love to see any of your listeners come by LDI and meet us and talk to us. And, of course, we're going to also be at USITT this year, as we are every year. It's going to be in Salt Lake City. So that's the other side of the country as well. We have some interesting new products that um, one of them or two maybe that we're launching at LDI. So that will be really noteworthy, but it's a little too soon to mention them just now. Alec, have you been to LDI before? Uh, No, I haven't. It's far. Yeah, I think we need to make we need to do a little mecca and go and think of all the interviews we could do. It's true. Do a year's worth of interviews in one week. That would be really cool. Well, I hope you'll join us again. I think you got a lot of information. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I would love to. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. As usual, I will leave us with a quote: "Arts technology used appropriately gives people magic powers for making art. It doesn't replace them." Chris Ashworth. The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with the Q Show cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11. To 11. To 11.